Let's pray and we will get started. Lord, we come to you now. We thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, some really beautiful weather today. Uh, We thank you for the opportunity here in the middle of the week to stop down and consider your word. Um, Lord, I confess uh, feeling a bit just um, scatterbrained. And so I pray that you would work in spite of that tonight and allow us to really focus on what you want us to see uh, in Isaiah. Uh, We thank you uh, that we can gather here and have the freedom to study our word and to not have to whisper. And I pray that's something that we would never take for granted. We also thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thankful for the reminder in the last few sermons just that we should not neglect the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to give us understanding and to allow us to, to fight against sin. Um, we humble ourselves before you tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the book of Isaiah. If this is your first time with us, <coughs> we are... Um, this thing sounds echoey. Is that a word? All right. It should be a word because that's how it sounds. Um, we are going through books of the Bible. And so we started in Genesis and we spent uh, a few years in Genesis, spent a few more years in Exodus. And then when we got to uh, Leviticus, we started moving a little more quickly. And so generally now we spend Wednesday nights um, about two weeks at a time in uh, a book of the Bible. And we are now to the point of Isaiah. And we just made a transition out of the wisdom literature. And so Frankly, to me, it feels like a really awkward transition because we went from this very practical wisdom literature where you see these details and they're quickly applicable, and then we go to Isaiah, which is not quickly applicable details. And not only that, but we went to Isaiah, and then we took a week off, and now we're going to do Isaiah part two. So I feel like we're all here together in this really awkward situation of Isaiah, and I hope we can get through it. And there are apparently uh, crazy people in the hallway. Yeah, that's a good spot. It's a good spot. Oh, good. Okay, humble. There. <coughs> yeah, I was trying to be subtle there. Um, so I, I feel like we've got this unique dynamic at play here. So tonight we'll probably do a little bit more review than we normally do. And I hope that as we read through probably larger portions of text that we can just enjoy our Lord and enjoy what he has revealed. And there may not be a whole lot of practical application like that that came out of all the wisdom literature that we just went through. So two weeks ago, we moved into a section of the Bible known as the Major Prophets, specifically the book of Isaiah. The basic outline of Isaiah is it's 66 chapters. And the first 35 are about God and his expression towards his people, and that was quite a bit of doom and gloom. His people weren't being really very obedient. They weren't being um, uh, the way that he has told them to be, and he, there's a lot of warning, a lot of heavy words, a lot of things in the scripture where when you see God give a heavy warning, it, it's supposed to startle. It's supposed to grab your attention. It's supposed to make you stop down and look at what you're doing as opposed to what he's telling you to do. And then in 36 through 39 the poetry stops. And there's this dramatic um, historical event, which is the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians, which we talked about last week. We'll talk a little bit more about this week. And then the last 26 chapters, 40 through 66, offer more reason for hope. So the theme throughout the entire book of Isaiah, and we're using Mark Dever's outline because 
it's, he just does a wonderful job of giving us tangible, digestible um, outline and structure for these big, massive books of the Bible that were taken two weeks at a time. So we take this from his outline, and the theme throughout the entire book is that the people of Judah are enticed regularly to trust in the wrong things. The people of Judah are enticed regularly to trust in the wrong things. So our basic two-part outline for our study in Isaiah is the problem of trusting in the wrong things and then the solution of properly placed trust. I just kind of wanted to start tonight with an honest question and hopefully a little bit honest uh, dialogue. I don't think trust is a real simple issue. I actually think it's kind of complex, mainly because of our sin, but I think we could all have sort of some differing views of trust, and I'm hoping that Isaiah brings those into line, but the thing I wanted to start off with tonight is, what does it mean to trust God? If you say, I trust God, what does that mean? What are you saying? Yeah, so there's a picture of a sovereignty there where you're saying, I know that the things I don't know, he does know, and when I step out, he, he's got me. It's good. What else does it mean to say I trust God? Yep. What is it that makes it difficult to step out? Fear of the unknown. Does anyone have fear of the unknown? Anyone struggle with that at all? I, I, I definitely do. All right, nice. That's good. <laughs> I fear of raising my hand and admitting that in front of the whole group. What were you going to say? Letting go, yeah, letting go of control. Um, have you all ever noticed that the things we usually worry about the most are the things that we actually don't have any control over? Have you all ever noticed that? I've noticed that in my own life where I'm like, if I find myself awake at night or if I find myself you know, caught in, in a moment in the middle of the day where I'm worrying or trying to fight against anxiety or something like that, usually I'll say, okay, what is it that I'm worrying about or that I'm anxious about right now? And it is something that I have absolutely zero control of most of the time. And so for control freaks, well, that's just terrifying, right? That's, that's the thing that bothers us the most is um, I, I think maybe by worrying, it, I, worrying about it, I can gain control over it when he says who by worrying can add a single second to the span of his life. So uh, yes, giving up control is a massive part of, of trusting God because you're saying you're sovereign and I'm not, which we learned in Ecclesiastes in, in a significant manner. What else? What, is, what does it mean to trust God? Yeah, resting in him. There's, uh, I mean, the epitome, the picture of a lack of rest is, is anxiety and being you know, burdened with cares because you, you're not trusting God's design. Um, is it, um, I don't even know how to pose the question. I was thinking beforehand about you know, some answers that might come up here. and I, I think there was a point in my life where I thought, Trusting God means he'll do what I want him to do. You ever kind of gone down that route before and realized how horrible it is? Where you're, where you're like, you know, I trust God. I trust that he hears my prayers and that he'll do what I want him to do. And there's a difference between trusting that he hears our prayers and trusting that he'll do what we want him to do. And that, that was made most evident to me in Philippians 4 where he says, I'll give you peace that exceeds understanding. Because for control freaks, peace equals understanding. If you want me to have peace, give me understanding. But he says um, uh, he will work things out according to his plan, according to his sovereign will. He knows the beginning from the end. And he's put eternity in our hearts, but we're not God. And we don't know the beginning from the end. And so 
trusting God isn't just saying, I trust that he'll do what I think is best, but sometimes we can wrongly default into thinking in that manner, especially during something that's difficult, like sickness or uncertainty or financial woes or things like that. It's like, I trust God, we're going to get through this. And it's like, what do you mean you're going to get through that? That's kind of what I wanted to look at tonight. What does that mean that, you know, there's a sickness. Okay, I trust God to do what? To do what I want is what it is a lot of times. It's a great point. Yeah, there has to be a relationship and a walk with the Lord that there's a certain prep, you know, when, when Scripture says do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you, there's, a, there's an indication and encouragement there to be walking with God and preparing for things that could happen. You know for sure um, a handful of different things that will take place in your life. And so you need to be preparing for those things. I, I was reading about a book, of, um, this book by C.J. Mahaney called Humility, and um, he, he indicates that it's like, you know that death is real, right? You know that that will happen at some point, whether it's your own death or the death of a loved one, death of a friend. And he talks about just reckoning with that reality before it gets there so that when it comes, you can have, um, you can have there can be certainly um, mourning, but there doesn't have to be regret. And so there's preparations that you can make along the way to prepare for, for hard times and to be in a relationship with the Lord where you're walking with him so that, Trust isn't a new thing when you're in the middle of a crisis. And I think that's kind of what Isaiah is helping us to understand that don't wait until you're in the middle of a mess to begin trusting God. Trust God all the time, especially, you know, when the mess comes. So um, this book was written uh, during the second half of the 8th century, so 700, 750 years before Christ. During this time in Israel... There were five different kings over the course of this stretch of Isaiah's prophesying. And he he started with Uzziah. And so Isaiah's reign as prophet began at the end of Uzziah's reign, and it ended during King Manasseh's. And story has it that he was likely sawn in half by Manasseh at the end. Sorry to spoil it for you. Um, uh, Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, that thing. Um, But Uzziah... 52 years he reigned, and then there was Jotham, who was good, and continued Uzziah's, his father's work for another 16 years. Then there was Ahaz, and he was, he was bad, and he screwed things up. Then there was Hezekiah, who did a lot of really good things. And then there was Manasseh, who was not all that awesome. So, um, in review, do y'all remember what were some of the wrong things that Israel put their trust in? It was two weeks ago. You gotta go way back. Other kings... What else? How'd they put their trust in other kings? What'd that look like? Yep. They looked to partner with Egypt. Who else did they look to partner with? Assyria. And then what happened when Assyria sort of tanked after the siege? Then who was a threat? Babylon. Oh, well, let's make a deal with Babylon. And so there's this, whoever you're fearing almost, whoever you're trying to you know, put your hope and put your trust in, you're going there, but it changes because the thing we know now is Assyria, uh, Egypt, uh, Babylon, uh, for the Hebrew church that we're looking, studying on Sunday mornings, Rome, 
Um, they're not threats right now, and the church still stands. And so we can look at that, and we can gain, um, gain some footing in how we can trust God to see how he saw them through that. And so um, they put their trust in other kings, which was wrong. Uh, what else did they put their trust in? Okay. themselves. Yep. Self-sufficiency. That's a, that's a difficult one for many of us. Um, putting your trust in what you think you can accomplish on your own doing. And a lot of times you'll find yourself right smack dab in the middle of that, in the middle of that and not realize it until you have failed miserably. That's how it's played out in my life anyway, where it's like, man, God, why in this going right? He's like, because you're doing it all on your own. You should have some faith and trust me and maybe spend some time in prayer and go to the word before you keep launching off into something. So a lot of times we'll realize our self-sufficiency when we're in the middle of failing. Isn't that encouraging? So other kings uh, themselves, what else did they put their faith in? Yeah, other gods. Yeah, they would go to mediums. They put their faith in other gods. At one point, they even made a deal with death. Y'all remember that? They were so backwards in their thinking, that they thought, we'll make a deal with death, and so every idol demands a sacrifice, so they make their sacrifice, they make a deal with death, and the deal was that because we made a deal with death, death will pass us over when it comes through. Let me know how that goes for you, making a deal with death, other gods. And what was the last one? Anyone remember the last one? Idols are part of the other gods, for sure. And then what about their, their leaders? The unfaithful leadership. Yeah. They, uh, they put their, their faith in unfaithful leadership. When they had leadership that led them away from God, they shouldn't have followed them. And so as a leader of this church, I wanted to make it clear last time, I want to make it clear this time, if the leadership of this church leads you away from God, don't follow them. Don't follow us. You have to know what God's will is and know what his word says enough to know if you are being led astray. It's very important that you are well-informed, eager to be transformed by the renewal of your own mind and knowing what this says so that you're not led astray because their leadership failed them horribly in their unfaithfulness. So the problem that we see in Isaiah is trusting wrong things. And what I want us to see is that they were accused of rebelling. So I want us to make this connection that the way that Israel rebelled was by trusting in wrong things. Do you all see that? That's the way they rebelled. A lot of times we think of rebellion as just like, you're just doing the wrong thing. You're just sinning blatantly. You're, you're cussing. You're getting drunk. You're whatever. And we think that that's rebellion. But here, their rebellion is that they were trusting in wrong things. So have you ever considered that trusting in the wrong things is an act of rebellion? It's not just a, a lesser option. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. There, what we're seeing here is that um, trusting in the wrong things isn't just a lesser option. Trusting in the, it's not like, well, I'll just put my trust in this, and it, it may not be as good as trusting in God, but, you know, I, I'm not being evil by doing that. And he's saying, no, this is rebellion. Rebellion is putting trust in the wrong things. Their lack of trust in God, like you just described, caused them to look for comfort and endurance and assurance and happiness and hope in other things. And so the question for us that sort of should get our attention is um, where are we looking for comfort and endurance and hope and peace in our trials? 
Are we looking to the Lord? Do we trust that even when it seems like a train wreck, I mean, when it's not going the way we want it to go, when we're full of heartache because of what we've faced, when maybe someone's been wrong. My cousin this week was uh, uh, carjacked at knife point. She's a girl, um, blonde-headed girl who is, I think, uh, 18 or 19 now. And she's gated community, parking garage, everything that the parent would want to protect. She's walking out to her car at 6.30 in the morning. Guy comes up with a knife and says, give me your purse, give me your car. <laughs> yeah. And so, luckily, it, it could have been, you know, been a lot worse. Thankfully, um, the Lord did watch over her, and, and uh, she, she, nothing happened to her. She was not physically harmed. Obviously, it was pretty terrifying, but she was not physically harmed. And so, um, you know, a girl is robbed at knife point. And so what I'm talking about here is where we're looking for comfort, hope, and peace in those things is there are times where things, bad things happen. There are times, and so there's times where um, the sickness may get really bad. There are times where maybe death could come from something bad that happened. There are times where you are maybe sort of scarred for the rest of your life because of something you went through. Um, she's got to have to work through, um, you know, being attacked and, and being, you know, violated. And so it's one of the, what I'm wanting us to see here is how do we trust God in those times? How do we keep to look, keep from looking at, at toward other things and for other things for the comfort and, and that we need to endure through those things? Because it might be, she might be tempted at some point to say, um, to say, well, if, if, if I really, if God was trustworthy, he wouldn't have let that happen. You see what I'm saying? And so what I want, I want us to really think through this trust thing because it's so, there's so many nuances there where if, you're in a, if something bad happens, you could say, well, I trusted him and I got carjacked. What, I trusted him. To, I, she might have gotten up and prayed that morning, Lord, please watch over me. Let nothing bad happen. Let me walk in faith today. And she went out to her car and got carjacked. I mean, you see what I'm saying here? There, there, there's so many details here where it, it takes work. It takes that relationship that you mentioned of walking with the Lord and knowing that even in those times where you can look at that and say, God's still trustworthy. Something horrible happened. God's still trustworthy. And we can continue to rely on him and continue to trust that he is working everything for his will and for his good. It reminds me of uh, Genesis 50 where Joseph looks at his brothers and says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. It wasn't God took the evil thing and made it pretty. It was, no, it was evil. That's what you did, and God meant it for good. That's a great point. It's, it's, it's appropriate for God to know that we desire him above the things that he offers to us. And, a lot, and we need to always be reminded that we're far more blessed than any of us realize. And there are verses that speak directly to, if you don't work, don't eat. And so there's like this dynamic at play there where these things are going. And he says, I, any temptation that you face in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, um, no temptation has overcome, has taken you, that is not common to man. I'll give you the way of escape, is what he says. And so there's this movement that is expected, and he blesses us immensely through that process. Um, the, um, the solution that we considered last time we met was found in Isaiah 40. So go ahead and turn there, Isaiah 40. And what I want us to see, and it's interesting, you mentioned a dynamic where there's, you know, comfort was hard to come by. And here what I want us to see in Isaiah is um, they wronged God horribly. They turned from him. They trusted other kings, which was a total mockery to the one who is above all kings. 
They trusted other gods. They trusted themselves. They trusted their unfaithful leadership. And in Isaiah 40, this remarkable thing happens. This is after he has destroyed um, the Assyrians. Remember, uh, do you remember how that played out? Does anyone remember how that whole Assyrian thing went? Remember the really bad, what was his name? Uh, the, the Assyrian leader who wanted to speak to them in their native tongue so that they could be terrified as much as possible. Sennacherib, wasn't that his name? Sennacherib, something like that. Anyway, bad guy, and he's saying, don't let Hezekiah fool you. You're not going to win. You're not going to escape me. You're not going to get, get away. Don't let Hezekiah tell you that your God's going to deliver you because no one's God has delivered them from me. I'm bad, and I'm going to take you out. And he says it in their native tongue so that they can hear it clearly and be terrified. And it's one of those, he called God out, and it's like, step back, because the next day he wakes up and there's about 200,000 dead Assyrian soldiers because God exercised everything God had to exercise uh, in that moment. And he made it clear that when they had absolutely no other hope, he was the one who rescued them. And so we go to Isaiah 40 because it's about comfort for God's people. But what I want us to realize is that it comes in the middle of a season where they don't deserve comfort. It's, it's a comfort where... They were wronging God. They have been turning from God. They have been faithless. They have been godless. They have been idolatrous. They've been doing a number of horrible things. And here we have this Isaiah 40 comfort for God's people, showing us that the solution we considered last time, rather than putting your place, trust, put, placing your trust in the wrong things, that God is the one in whom we should always place our trust. And this is why. Look at 40.18. We could read all, all the whole chapter because it's absolutely amazing. But 40.18 says... To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. If you're ever feeling like you got this, like, God, I don't know if I even need you on this one. I got this. You are like grasshoppers. Do you know what happens when a grasshopper makes me mad? That's right. I just step right on it. That's all you got to do. And they just die. So, so know your place here. God doesn't step on us and kill us. But know the, the uh, fragility of the grasshopper's exoskeleton. Um, so its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, and he blows on them, and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He's saying, look at the stars. He said, you see all those stars? Like when y'all go out tonight, if it's a clear night, look up and look at the stars. That's what he's saying here. Look up at all those. See who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. That's another good opportunity for you to remember how small you are and how great God is and how worthy of trust he is. I love sitting out in my front yard and looking at the stars with my kids and saying, hey kids, God named all of them, and they're all still there because he's holding them in their place. What do y'all think about that? And they're like, oh, I don't know, that's crazy. I was like, what do you think their names are? And then we just like, I'm like, let's start with that one right there. 
And, you know, you get about 20 names in and they start running out. I'm like, he named billions and billions that we're making up like Bonquiqui and like crazy names, trying to think of new names. And, and he holds them in their place and he has given them all a name. He is not like us. He is far greater than us. And he gives us reminders. He tells us to look at the birds and consider the lilies. He tells us to look up at the stars. There are things that we can do to remember that he is very, very trustworthy. This, um, it goes on to say, uh, lift up your eyes on high, see these, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is, regarded, is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait, waiting is a sign of trust for the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the one whom God's people should have always trusted. When Jerusalem had no other hope, this is the one who came as their helper, not because they deserved it, but because he was pursuing them um, in a manner that is otherworldly, even in their unholiness. Dever notes, one of the most striking things about the book of Isaiah is the tenacity of God's love for his unfaithful people. I'm going to say that again. One of the most striking things about the book of Isaiah is the tenacity of God's love for his unfaithful people. When we read Isaiah 40, we're purposefully reminded that God is not like us. Some people, have you ever met someone who's right all the time? Y'all know anybody like that? They're just right all the time? Okay. Yeah. At least in their own eyes. At least in their own eyes, they're right all the time. So some people are right all the time, but maybe not so loving. Some people are loving all the time, but they won't shoot straight with you. You, ever, you know those people? All they're going to do is affirm you. Oh, you robbed a gas station? Well, you were hungry. You know, it's like they're just too affirming. They're just like, they won't shoot straight with you. Some people are loving all the time, but maybe they won't really shoot straight with you when it's needed. But God is perfectly right and loving all the time. It's one of the ways that he's not like us, according to Isaiah 40. Isaiah presents a picture of the one true God who's perfectly holy and perfectly loving. And Isaiah goes even further, not just reminding them about their God and drawing out the differences between them and him, but also by encouraging them, Isaiah, the prophet, encourages them to anticipate the Messiah. So he goes even further. It's not just consider the greatness of your God, but he says, I'm going to lift your spirits even more in the midst of your mess, and I want you to anticipate the Messiah. So turn to 28:16. And at this point, we're going to be reading a lot of text, and I'm going to be moving through fairly quickly, but I want us to really take this in. And we've got about 15 or 20 minutes, so we're going to try to take in a bunch of text. Isaiah 28:16 <coughs> says, Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever, whoever believes will not be in haste. What is Israel led to anticipate here? That's funny. Yeah, there's an anticipation of Jesus here. We know this, 
but they didn't know this, that it was Jesus. They, they, they were, we know these things post, um, post-cross, post-resurrection. These things are clear to us, but they were having their sights raised where it was, look at God, look at how he's altogether different from you and you're not like him and he is so powerful, but also as he's encouraging them, he's saying, lift up your eyes and begin to anticipate a Messiah, a, st- a cornerstone, um, a tested stone, a precious foundation. And um, what, God, what God is doing through Isaiah for the nation Israel right now is, is he's beginning to help them see that the plan of God is focusing and hinging upon an individual. This is 700 and something years before Christ. And God, to encourage them to lift their hopes, is, is to show them, hey, this, my plan is beginning to focus and hinge upon an individual. And look at 32.1. 32.1 says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. So what, what are we anticipating here? How will this king differ? He's going to be righteous. There will be no unrighteousness in this king. And he's not just a Messiah. What I want you all to know is that any kings in the Old Testament that are mentioned, they were always considered to be a Messiah of some sort, an anointed one, an anointed king. What he's talking about here and beginning to... Uh, work in them and in their thoughts and in their anticipation is not a Messiah, but the Messiah. There's a shift that's happening here in the prophecies where he's shifting to the Messiah. But this anticipated one who was to come would be more than just a good king. So here we see there's a king who's going to reign in perfect righteousness, and we're to anticipate this person. God's plan is hinging upon an individual and a king, but not just a king. Turn to 9, 6 through 7. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. We're doing a lot of turning in Isaiah, but I won't go outside of it, I promise, for now. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. I love that. You think about all the corruption in the world right now. Think about all the unrest in so many parts of the world. Think about threats of you know, nuclear war and threats of government takeovers and threats of all kinds of different things and, and oppression for people and taking away people's freedoms. It encourages me immensely to see of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's a certainty about this prophecy that should encourage you today in a similar manner that it encouraged them as they were hearing it here for the first time. Look at 11, 1 through 5. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins." In these few verses, 9, 6 through 7, and 11, 1 through 5, what else could the people of Israel be anticipating in this Messiah King? 
What are some things we just saw there? Just go ahead and throw them out. What? There's a lot of things. Just throw them out. Peace, wisdom, understanding, righteousness. These are things that they should begin to anticipate in that individual who is being prophesied 700 years before he walked the earth. So here what we're seeing is they're to be anticipating a Messiah King and particularly the Spirit is upon him in, in some remarkable ways that are different from any other king and he's no longer a Messiah. This one will be the Messiah. So there's this kingly figure in Isaiah that emerges or begins to emerge that is to be anticipated. But there's another figure that emerges as well. Turn to Isaiah 50. So there's a kingly figure that emerges through the prophecies. And then there's another figure that emerges through the prophecies. Isaiah 50, I'm going to read verses 4 through 10a. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Don't you love people like that in your life, how they can sustain with a word him who is weary because they have the tongue of him who is taught. And their indications, they're um, they're, going to be reflecting Christ if they're doing this. And so it says, morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. So he didn't place his trust in other things. He was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Along with the kingly figure, what other figure is emerging here? Jesus as what, though? Servant? Messiah servant? So we have Messiah king, we've got Messiah servant here. Dever notes, he says, the question that cries out throughout the book of Isaiah is this. How would a holy God forgive and restore the very people he charges with rebellion? How would he do that? They would even beat, mock, and spit upon his servant, as is noted here. So there's a kingly figure that emerges. There's a servant that emerges. They beat, mock, and spit upon him. And he says, how would a holy God forgive and restore the very people he charges with rebellion? And he says the answer comes through the same servant. Look at 52. This is probably the longest section that I'll read. 52.13 through 53.12 says this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. This is Isaiah prophesying about Christ. My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Those kings that you put your hope in, their mouths will be shut because of this servant. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not... Uh, they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him 
no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silence, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his, his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall, be, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Remember, this is over 700 years before Christ walked the earth. Again, Dever makes a note that in Isaiah, God's solution to this problem of a rebellious people that he, has to, he, he is tenaciously pursuing, God's solution is not simply an abstract and unfocused picture of himself as deliverer. God's solution has always been a focused picture of a person, a servant. And this servant listens perfectly to God and yet he suffers and is rejected in order to bear the sins of God's people. So for the hearer of Isaiah's prophecy, those who heard this during this time, by the end of the book, that hearer of the prophecy would be anticipating the Messiah King who is different from all other kings and realize that the Messiah King is also the suffering servant. That's what they'd be realizing as they hear this. They'd be listening to this prophecy and they would see emerging this Messiah King and then in time toward the end they would see emerging this servant, the suffering servant, and realize that that is going to be the same person that they're supposed to be anticipating, the Messiah King suffering servant. To be clear, this is Jesus. We kind of, I mean, I'm not spoiling anything. I think we all get that by now. But living on this side of the cross and the resurrection, we know this. But for those hearing the prophecies, Details were included that would deeply affirm later um, Christ as the Messiah and King. Turn to Isaiah 61. This is what we'll be closing with, this, this in, a, in a connection. Isaiah 61, 1 through 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Now turn to Luke chapter 4. We've seen this in a, in a couple sermons before. There's a song that we sing about this that's just 
remarkable, and Clint wouldn't do it tonight, even though I gave him like four entire minutes of heads up. In Luke chapter 4, and some of y'all may already know this story, and it's so good to engage it again if you do. We see this prophecy here in Isaiah 61, and then in Luke chapter 4. Remember, over 700 years separating these texts. The Bible proves itself over and over again. Luke 4, verse 14 says, um, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written. So there's this priority that he gives to this particular part of Scripture. Says, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering a sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Absolutely remarkable moment. Like, it's, it seems very subtle. I really wish it would have read like, he read Isaiah 61, and then did that. It's me! <laughs> like, like that's, that's fulfilled today in your hearing. What y'all are hearing right now, no one's ever heard before. In your hearing, this scripture is being fulfilled today. I'm the one that Isaiah 61 was talking about. And it's a strong encouragement to be able to trust our Lord. Isaiah 61 was clearly fulfilled in Jesus. And imagine that moment. Being a Jew who knew what Isaiah prophesied and hearing Jesus' massive claim on that day. This that we see in Isaiah is the gospel. What I want us to see is in this difficult book that's kind of hard to read and kind of hard to make sense of and the dots are a little more difficult to connect than a lot of other books, we are seeing the gospel. God is holy. God is loving. He has loved us much better than we have loved him. You can relate to the sinners in the book of Isaiah. You don't look down your nose at them. He has loved us much better than we have loved him. And he went to great lengths to devise a way to be able to love unholy us without compromising his own perfect justice and perfect righteousness. We're hearing the gospel in Isaiah. So he sent his only begotten son to become a man, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, taking on himself the sins of all those who would ever repent and believe in him and conquering death through his resurrection forever. It's, we study a lot of in-depth, different things, deep theological truths and doctrines. Tonight, I'm closing with the reality of the gospel. Jesus pursued you when you didn't deserve it. You didn't earn his favor. You didn't earn his love. He loved you when you were, in fact, very unlovable, and he did that very, very specifically according to a plan that was put in place before he breathed creation into existence, a plan that would hinge upon one Messiah king and suffering servant. And so the only way that he could continue to tenaciously pursue a very undeserving and rebellious people is in his son, Jesus Christ. He went to great lengths to find a way 
to love unholy us without compromising his own justice and his own righteousness. And that is the best news that I could ever share with anybody. The, the gospel, the, the, those realities are so common to us. And it is good to have times like this in scripture where we say, we should like, go home and think about that. Like, go talk to your kids about that. Just, just bask in this reality of the lengths that God went to to save you. The, the, the sacrifice that was made in his only begotten son, becoming a man, living a perfect life, and taking our sins upon himself on the cross. Turn to Isaiah 59, 20. When I was working on my notes, I thought, maybe we'll just have a revival tonight. Just throw down on it. Isaiah 59, 20. It says, And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob, who turn from transgression. Who is the redeemer coming to? Those who do what? Who repent, turn from the transgression. So the encouragement here, who's the Redeemer coming to? Those who repent. The encouragement here at the end of Isaiah is turn from your transgression, repent and believe in the one in whom he sent. Believe in the Messiah King, believe in the suffering servant, and repent. That is the one to whom he is coming. And, and according to Isaiah 66.2, go ahead and turn there if you'd like, the last verse of the night. Isaiah 66.2, all these things my hand has made, so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Who does God look to? Who's he looking to? When he comes to find those who are repentant, who's he looking to? The humble, the contrite, those who tremble at his word. That just tells me, like the obvious takeaway tonight, there's not a whole lot of you know, real practical application, but this is pretty practical application here at the end. Repent, humble and contrite, and tremble at his word. If this doesn't shake you up at all, if this doesn't floor you from time to time, if this doesn't invade your day in ways that are sometimes uncomfortable and at other times largely comforting and encouraging, maybe we're not trembling enough. Are we humble and contrite? Do we see our sin as our biggest problem or do we see a lot of other things as our biggest problem? That's a difficult thing because I know that there are people in this body who are facing some really hard issues, some real heartache. But I want you to know your biggest problem is your sin. And so if we can remember that our biggest problem is our sin, we'll never take lightly this call to be humble and contrite and tremble at his word and make sure we are always turning from our transgression. And I think Sunday's message was a huge encouragement that we've been given the Holy Spirit. We've got a a massive opportunity in this new covenant not to be enslaved to sin anymore, but we're freed and to be able to walk in that freedom and to be able to conquer sin, to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to set our minds on the things above and to truly be transformed by the renewal of our minds. There's a, there's a lot of encouragement in Isaiah. Obviously, we could spend months and months in it, but I think that's what God has for us in these few short two studies in this 66-chapter book. As we close, be humble, be contrite, tremble at the word, and turn from your sin, and with them, anticipate the Messiah, King, and suffering servant as the one in whom you have redemption. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now. We thank you for our time in Isaiah tonight. Um, Lord, there's just a lot there, and we, I feel like we could spend so much more time on it. Um, and I'm thankful that you would give us any clarity in such an abbreviated amount of time in such a massive book. Um, Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised, and Isaiah reveals to us some of why that is. 
Thank you for coming to a people who did not deserve you. Thank you for providing comfort when comfort is not what we deserved. Thank you for rescuing us while we were still sinners. Thank you for writing through a prophet 700 years before Christ walked the earth an encouragement to look for Jesus. Thank you for telling us not these vague descriptions of what might happen, but, but very specific descriptions of how your plan will reach its fullness in a person who is the Messiah, a king of righteousness in whom there is no righteous, no unrighteousness, and one who is a suffering servant. Lord, help us to see that we are in league with those who mocked him and who spit on him and who wronged him. And help us to see the marvelous, deep scandal of him being pierced for our transgressions. To see that it was your will to do that to him for your glory and for our sake should leave us humble and contrite and trembling at the word. I pray that these realities would cause us to more wholeheartedly pursue holiness and be all the more eager to glorify you in every single aspect of our life. Lord, if any of us are here tonight and there is an area of our life that is sort of out of bounds for you or you know, we, don't, we don't want you going there, I pray that we would repent and that we would seek with our entire lives to glorify and honor you. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a good night. Go get your kiddos.